Hi, this is Anishka Fernandopoli. I hope this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button under my picture on dharmaseed.org or go to my website, anushkaf.org, A-N-U-S-H-K-A-F.org, and click on donate. Thanks. I appreciate your support. So about a week ago, all of you were arriving here and ready to start out on the journey of metta for a week. And I think it's always nice to reflect back uh, on your week. Right? So you've had many weeks in your life so far, and this was probably an unusual one. It actually is such a beautiful thing to do, to spend a week doing your best to cultivate the heart of well-wishing, right? heart of kindness. It's so rare that people do that. Like it's almost ridiculously idealistic to think about it or to try to describe it to someone, what you did this week. Right? And it's, yet it's such a beautiful thing to spend your time doing. I really think it's one of the most noble things that you could do with your time as a human being, uh, cultivating the heart and mind, either through this practice or through other spiritual practices. And also it actually is a significant step on the path towards happiness, which is the Buddhist path. Right, the path towards liberation, path towards happiness. So in the past week, we've spent some time uh, looking at metta and talking about the practice and techniques and mudita, karuna, the sympathetic joy, appreciative joy, compassion, equanimity. So I thought I'd kind of zoom out now as we're about to shift in this period and talk a little bit about this practice in the context of the larger uh, dhamma. So the larger spiritual practices, uh, the teachings of the Buddha, uh, and also the vipassana practice, the mindfulness practice, that a significant number of you are going to shift into doing uh, for the next period of your retreat. So I've always loved this metta practice. I found it very inspiring from the first time that I heard about it. And uh, actually found it very inspiring to hear about people who had actually cultivated their hearts and minds to a point um, where this was their default state. Right? This was their basic state of being in the world. Uh, and I started uh, practice uh, fairly early in life and was doing some longer-term retreats um, by the time I was in my uh, early 20s. And I remember it's kind of a time when people ask you a lot of questions about what you're going to do with your life and uh, uh, what you're going to become and so on. And um, I didn't really have any good uh, answers that grabbed me. And then I uh, heard about these different people who had really um, freed themselves, uh, and I thought, that's what I want to become. Uh, It really inspired me. And, you know, it wasn't, uh, you know, it's not a job, per se, right? But uh, I thought, oh, to become someone like that, who, uh, you know, like some of the um, others were describing, the uh, teachers who went to the aquarium and naturally blessed the fish, right? Um, Or who just had a sense of well-wishing, regardless of what was given back to them. I thought, oh, that's that's really something that I want to become. Um, that seems like something good. And then it doesn't matter what job you have, right? <laughs> you still be of benefit to other people. And also it seems like you would be a pretty happy person too. So I said about uh, cultivating that and uh, practicing uh, vipassana metta practice uh, and had many adventures along the way. And the, the practices align very much uh, together. Like the wisdom 
practice and the love practice, this metta practice, are really like two sides of the same coin in some ways. And uh, if some of you went down to that um, gratitude hut uh, that's on the way towards the lower parking lot, um, you may have read some of the descriptions of the teachings of various teachers. And one of them, uh, Sri Nisargadatta Maharaj, has a teaching that says, uh, love tells me I'm everything. Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. Between the two, my life flows. So both sides are very uh, important in the uh, practice of awakening. So James had uh, talked about how this practice is part of wise effort, right, of cultivating wholesome states of mind, skillful states of mind. So knowing when they arise and then cultivating them along, knowing the conditions to support that arising. And then the other side is knowing when unskillful states arise. So that's states of hatred, cruelty, right? Uh, sometimes I call them like non-ill will right? and, uh, for hatred. And then understanding what are the conditions that lead to those arising and trying to avoid those conditions. Right? And when those uh, states arise, then trying to let go of them. Right? So spending a week trying to cultivate the uh, metta is really a good way of getting yourself familiar with that terrain. Right? So getting yourself uh, familiar with, well, what does it actually feel like when the heart is in this state of metta? Like, what is that like? And knowing that experientially. And then what is it like when something else comes up that's not metta? And what is that like? And what's the difference in that? Right? So really exploring the flavors of different states of mind uh, experientially. Right? So now you know for yourself a lot more about that than you did in the beginning of the week. And sometimes I think it's kind of like you know, learning about the body. Right? So when you're born, uh, there's these body things that happen to you. And uh, you don't really know what's going on. So like sneezing, for example, right? It just happens to your body, right? Uh, and uh, after a while, you get the, the uh, sense of what's happening, right? So you still are not controlling it, but you can sort of start to sense, uh, sometimes at least, when a sneeze might start to happen, right? So you can start to feel like, oh, I'm about to sneeze, right? And then sometimes you can actually get the, the hang of uh, stopping the sneeze if it starts, if it's not a good time to sneeze or if you don't feel like sneezing, or, right? <laughs> so you know, like this, there's this building of energy, right, kind of in this area, and it's like, oh, I'm about to sneeze, and then, you know, like that, or, you know, that, or people have different things they do, right? And of course, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't work, and sometimes you sneeze, sometimes you don't sneeze. Um, but little kids have no idea how to do that. Right? It's just like their body's just doing like sneezing and you know burping and digesting and you know going to the bathroom. It's like you know it's all just like going on. Right? <laughs> so going to the bathroom is another one. Like you have a sense usually, you know, like oh I'm about to go to the, like I need to go, right? <laughs> but it doesn't have to happen right then, right? <laughs> so you know, like oh, okay, I could wait till the end of the sitting or this or that, right? Most times, right, you can do that. Um, so it's like that actually with getting familiar with this terrain of the mind. Like you can actually become, begin to become more uh, aware of these different states as they arise and to know what they are. Right? So you can know the beginning of a state of unwholesomeness, like hatred or anger, right? when it's about to come up, sort of like a sneeze. Right? And then sometimes you can learn also to let that go, much as you can try to not sneeze. The trick, though, is that the finger that comes up like this has to be wisdom, right? And not aversion, right? (laughs) 
So it takes some practice. Um, but this is possible, right? This is possible. So the, the Buddha uh, describes his own practice uh, before he was enlightened. And he did various kind of little experiments that I'm sure many of you sort of came up with your own uh, ways to check things out this week, too. And I always find it interesting to, to hear about these uh, aspects of his practice. So before my enlightenment, when I was still an unenlightened bodhisattva, it occurred to me, suppose I divide my thoughts into two categories. So one category is sensual desire, ill will, cruelty. And another category is renunciation, non-ill will, or metta, and non-cruelty, or compassion. Right? So let's see what happens. So then he sat and he said, as I abided, a thought of ill will arose in me. I understood thus. This leads to my own affliction, to others' affliction, and to the affliction of both. This obstructs wisdom, causes difficulties, and leads away from liberation. So I investigated. So this state's arise, and what is the result of this? Like, where does this actually go? Right. And then he did the same with sensual desire, uh, ill will, and cruelty. Right. And then he looked at the other side of things. So what happens when the state of metta arises? And then he said, well, when those states arise, I understand the thought of compassion has arisen in me. This does not lead to my own affliction, nor to others' affliction, nor to the affliction of both. It aids wisdom, it does not cause difficulty, and it leads to liberation. If I think and ponder upon this thought for even for a night, even for a day, even for a night and a day, I see nothing to fear from it. So I paid attention, like where, where do these thoughts lead, these kind of states, and where do these ones lead? Right, let me check it out. And then his conclusion was, you know, whatever, uh, whatever a person frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of their mind. If they frequently think and ponder upon thoughts of ill will, they have abandoned thoughts of metta to cultivate thoughts of ill will and then their mind inclines towards ill will. So we're actually always cultivating something, is uh, what he's pointing towards. So when something arises, uh, if we're uh, keeping that going, right, in some way, then we're kind of digging that groove deeper in our mind-heart. And we all have these different habits of mind, right? So fear, uh, metta, cruelty, these different grooves of mind. And in every moment that one of these arises, and then we kind of keep it going. Uh, culti- we're actually cultivating that in some way. So this has been a good week for cultivating metta, right? So uh, a rare opportunity, spend a week kind of digging the trench of metta deeper so that you're more and more likely to fall into that uh, trench, really, <laughs> right? Uh, so some people had reported that they um, uh, felt this during some of the time in the retreat, but then they also noticed, like, these other things are happening, like I'm falling into these other trenches, and that were there before, so fear or anger or something like that. And what is going on with that? Because I was doing so well. Right? <laughs> so it's that the metta was going and felt good, and it's the new me, and you know it's great, and you know <laughs> that stuff. And um, this frequently happens during uh, practice, right? So uh, you know it's called insight meditation practice, and they say that you get a lot of insight, but some of it is bad news, right? <laughs> So part of the, the time, we start to notice more and more, like actually there are all these other states of mind that do arise for us a lot, 
right? And because we've been spending much more of the time in metta, when these other states arise, it's kind of like, oh, that. And it's so clear, like, oh, that's really different from loving kindness, this fear or this revenge. Or, you know. And other times you might not have noticed it as much or as uh, starkly, but the contrast is there. I think a significant part of practice is also knowing what you know should be happening, right? And it's not happening, right? So the way that I understand this, in some ways, is like um, as we're on this path of awakening, you know, as all of us are, you have like a wisdom eye that's kind of opening, right? But for most people, it doesn't just pop open and stay open permanently, right? But there's sort of a blinking that might happen, <laughs> right? Like this. So, you know, wisdom eyes open and then loving kindness, compassion, sees things the way that it is. Uh, wisdom eye closes and then it's uh, the ignorance, right? Ignorance is the state. Uh, and then from that, the usual habit patterns that come from that, uh, not clear sling, come up. So, from the wisdom eye, loving kindness, love is a protection. From the ignorance space, what comes up is hatred is my protection. That's what I need to protect myself, revenge, hatred, whatever, right? Fear, separation, all of that, right? And that's just kind of the way that our uh, wisdom practice goes often. There's like this, then there's this, or this, there's this, right? And sometimes it goes wisdom, wisdom, ignorance, 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 wisdom, ignorance, wisdom, you know, <laughs> like that, right? And you can see that. So it's helpful to just be very patient with yourself with all of this, right? Uh, and also to not identify with the other stuff that comes up. Not identify with any of it is best, right? Uh, and particularly when the things that are from the ignorance place are coming up. So there's anger that comes up, there's fear, there's revenge, there's cruelty, right? It's just the arising of these habit patterns that come from not clear seeing, right? So you don't need to get add on to that uh, some uh, story about like, how could this happen to me? How could I be feeling this? And so on, right? So just see that. See as much as you, as well as you can that that's what's there, and then see that that's not skillful. It's just a sign that uh, the wisdom eye is closed at the moment, and then try and let it go. Right. So it doesn't have to be like a, a, as terrible as if you add on to it, like judging and blaming and all this stuff. So I thought it would help also to do a little review of the um, way things are, too, in the Dhamma. So the Dhamma is the teachings of the truth, right? And it is the truth of the way things are, which is uh, something that Buddha had discovered through spiritual practice that we all can, too, right? So by paying attention, we can also awaken to the same thing. So it's not like an esoteric philosophy that he made up that you have to study and uh, figure out in some way. So among the things that are part of this teaching is when you pay attention to your experience, everything is changing. Everything is always changing. So some people had reported some worry about their um, practice changing as the retreat is uh, ending, or um, will I be able to keep things up in the same way when I go home? Uh, And the answer is uh, no. So (laughs) you actually don't need to worry about it because it's going to change. Uh, unless you are a rare person who actually lives in a retreat center in these same conditions, right? So the conditions here are really good for this certain uh, kind of practice to happen like this. 
And you can definitely keep the practice going in different ways when you go home, but you will have different conditions, right? And even the people who will stay here, things will change for them too. So different people will come in, start doing a different practice, and also your experience will change. Even if you stayed here another week, your experience would change during the same practice, right? So change is the nature of our experience. Because change is the nature of everything, uh, nothing is really solid. So every person is changing. Our bodies are constantly changing. Our minds are constantly changing, right? This stream of mind states coming and going. Uh, So we come to something in a moment and label this as me or as a piece of paper and so on, which is convenient to use to describe it. But it's actually just a concept for something that's part of a continuous stream of movement. But because we can't see this so clearly, then we try to cling to things. So we try to make things stay that are impermanent. Uh, We look for happiness in experiences and in objects that are not going to be there forever in the same state. Uh, And we feel like the source of happiness is going to be uh, external. So one of the uh, helpful things that I found to notice um, on retreat is times when you're really happy. So noticing times when you're actually feeling really happy and content. So hopefully everyone's had just one glimmer, at least, of such happening, right? And then to notice, like, well, what do I actually have here now, right? So in your mind, you might have whatever it is you have at home, right? So these kinds of relationships and this kind of house and this kind of job and this kind of title and so on, right? But here in the moment, what you have is just this. It's so uh, clear. Like, all of that could have disappeared, so what you have is just a place to sleep, you know, food to eat, and simply your relationship with the moment. Right? And to me, it's been given me a lot of freedom to see, you know, when the mind says, I need this to be happy, I need that to be happy, I need to line up these circumstances in order to be happy. Is that really true? Right? So I can remember a time when, oh, I was actually happy when I had nothing. I was walking slowly back and forth, you know, on this cement uh, <laughs> path. And I was actually very happy, right? Uh, so you know, it points to uh, the fact that happiness is actually about our uh, relationship to experience. Right? Happiness is about something besides uh, the object that's present. Right? So you can see this also if you reflect just even in society that um, people who have uh, a lot of things that are deemed uh, sources of happiness aren't necessarily happy. So, for example, you know, recently Michael Jackson died. And I was watching some of the um, videos of him when he was a little kid, and he was just a tremendously talented guy. Like, even when he was a little, little kid, like, he could sing, he could dance. Like, it was amazing. This guy was like a star, you know, from 9, 10, right? And then he got really famous, right? And then he got very wealthy, right? So all of these are things that you think would bring you happiness, right? So being incredibly talented, being incredibly wealthy, and being incredibly famous, right? And it really didn't seem like he was happy, you know, by the end of his life. Like, it seemed like that was not the case. And you can see this with looking at many other celebrity-type lives, too, right? In fact, there's a, um, a magazine, uh, you know, various magazines about celebrities, right? There's one called Us Weekly that we used to get in my... Um, work uh, at the um, break room. And I used to call it Dukkha Weekly as a joke, you know? 
because you look in this magazine and it's like um, people suffering from uh, breakups, like people uh, are addicted to drugs, um, you know, people's relationships breaking up, uh, you know, and granted, you know, like James was saying, this, the media sort of feeds on the calamities of uh, the famous, but it's clear that that kind of fame, beauty, success does not guarantee you happiness too, right? So then what does, you know, what, what are the causes of happiness, right? So that's part of our investigation and part of our, uh, our uh, practice here with the metta practice, right? So here, some of that has to do with uh, reflections on kama. So every action that we take with different intentions has some results, right? And kama is a very uh, complex subject to think about, talk about, because it's not always like one-to-one correlation. You can't really figure out, like, this means then this will happen then, right? But here's some of the teachings on this that's um, helpful to see from the Buddha. It is impossible. There is no occasion where bodily, verbal, or mental unwholesome conduct could produce a desired, pleasant, or agreeable result. No such possibility is known. But it is indeed possible it is known that bodily, verbal, or mental unwholesome conduct could produce an undesired, unpleasant, and disagreeable result. Such a possibility is known. It is impossible, there is no occasion where wholesome bodily, mental, verbal conduct could produce an undesired, unpleasant, or disagreeable result. No such possibility is known. But it is indeed possible, it is known, that wholesome bodily, verbal, or mental conduct could produce a desired, pleasant, and agreeable result. Such a possibility is known. So basically it's like, you know, plant a seed with every intention, right, of the mind, everything that we say, the intentions behind our speech, the intentions behind our action. It's like planting a seed in the ground. And the seeds that come from loving kindness, from compassion, from generosity, from these wholesome states are seeds that could grow into uh, positive, agreeable results, right? So it's kind of like you plant like a mango seed, then it's possible that a mango tree will grow with sweet fruit, right? But if you plant the seed of a plant that will have a bitter fruit, or like a ginkgo tree has like a smelly fruit, right? So if you plant that seed, then if the conditions are right, what will come up will be the ginkgo tree with these like smelly fruits, right? Unpleasant ones, right? So, you know, there are some things that has to do, it has to get enough water and this and that, right? But you're never going to plant a mango seed and get a ginkgo tree, right? And neither are you ever going to plant a ginkgo seed and get a mango tree. So there's more incentive to pay attention to our uh, states of mind and how we act from those. So connecting with what it is that's arising in our mind state is the uh, first part of that. And uh, we started off the retreat talking about the uh, precepts. And I feel like the precepts are a really important uh, area to pay attention to uh, in our practice. So it's actually like a tool to investigate your life. And uh, the meditation practice is a very important component. Right? But a lot of times we're not meditating. Right? We're going around in the world talking to people and doing various actions and buying things in the store and uh, interacting with coworkers and so on. Right? 
So the precepts are actually some kind of guide and uh, way for us to pay attention to particular points of our behavior. So here's some of the teachings um, on the precepts, too. So the person who follows the precept, so the abandoning of the taking of life, who abstains from taking of life, gives freedom from danger, freedom from animosity, and freedom from oppression to limitless numbers of beings. So actually, by practicing these precepts, you give this freedom to limitless number of beings. In giving freedom from danger, freedom from animosity, and freedom from oppression to limitless number of beings. She herself gains a share in limitless freedom from danger, animosity, and oppression. This is a great gift. So it goes on in each of the different uh, precepts. So in abandoning, taking what's not offered, in abandoning, uh, using sexuality in a harmful way, in abandoning unskillful speech, in abandoning intoxicants that cloud the mind, right? We give this gift of freedom from danger, freedom from animosity, freedom from oppression to others, limitless beings, and then also back to ourselves. Right? So you might have experienced this this week, um, going around Spirit Rock property somewhat, um, with the animals here. Right? So there's an unusual uh, relationship that people have with animals in a retreat center setting, I've found. Right? So like the deer will just kind of hang out and eat, like relatively close to you, right? Um, and uh, in other settings, they would want to be far away. Right? So the precept that human beings on this land will not try to kill them, you know, really gives them a sense of uh, comfort and safety that's different than in many, many places. And you see how they can be like more relaxed, right? Like it's this freedom from oppression, freedom from danger. It's a beautiful thing. And then I've noticed myself that thus it has an effect on me too. So it's actually really nice to have the deer not be afraid of you, isn't it? Like, and to be able to, to have this kind of like non-predatory relationship with them, yeah. So, you know, we think like, oh, the losers in that situation is just the deer if we were a hunter. But, you know, when you see, when, you're, when you let go of that, and when you're in a situation that's different, like, oh, actually, it gives me a lot of peace too, right? Like, that actually gives me this sense of being able to be more relaxed, right? and having this sense of connection with the animals. So it's good to, uh, to reflect on those and kind of pay attention to them in your life. So it's considered one of the best gifts that we can give someone is the gift of uh, fearlessness in our presence. And metta is a great way to be able to do that. So metta is this force of loving kindness. It's sometimes also called the unstoppable friendliness. So, you know, regardless of what you're going to do, right, I'm not going to beat you up, right? It's not like I'll be nice to you unless you say these five secret words to me, in which case I'll, like, get mad and want to hit you, right? It's like, oh, yeah, you have this sense that, like, there's a sense of kindness, this sense of okayness, uh, and it will be all right whatever you have to say to me, right? So you can think about some people you might have in your life or have had in your life who you feel that with, right, like that benefactor who you used, And it's such a beautiful thing to be able to give people that sense. And it also is so rare, right? So most of the time in our relationships, we're feeling kind of guarded, right? We feel like we need to uh, pay attention in this way, right? We're worried about becoming the uh, enemy, 
So I had a, a great lesson um, in this uh, metta from under any circumstances um, through some people who I worked with. So one of my, my day job for the last uh, period of time has been working as a consultant with different community groups and nonprofits uh, who are doing work in, involved in some kind of social change or social service. So one of my favorite groups that I worked with uh, was a group called the Tule Lake uh, Preservation Committee. And uh, this was a group of some older Japanese Americans who had been interned uh, during World War II in Tule Lake uh, internment camp, which is way up in the northeast corner of California in Modoc County. So uh, Jimmy and Eiko Yamaichi, who were in their 80s, and Hiroshi Shimizu, who was in his 60s, uh, were uh, among the people who were working with me. And they basically were trying to uh, establish some kind of national monument or memorial there just to help people not to forget what happened in that place. So I learned a lot uh, in working with them, both about that uh, experience of internment, um, and then also I learned a lot about uh, metta from them, too. So they had uh, been interned in the camp when they were younger, Hiroshi when he was a child, and Jimmy and Eiko when they were teenagers. Uh, and what happened in that, that time during World War II, for those who are not familiar, is that the US government decided that anyone of Japanese descent even second generation, third generation, whatever, was a potential enemy of the state and needed to be uh, locked up in these camps. So people were rounded up unceremoniously to leave everything first taken to these uh, sort of temporary places, horse stable kind of places, and then uh, sent to various internment camps for the duration of the war. Uh, and uh, this one in Tule Lake was considered the place for the troublemakers. So at some point they had given a questionnaire out to all the people in the internment camps that included uh, a sort of loyalty oath, like do you swear to the loyalty to the United States and will you serve in the armed forces and blah, blah, blah. So anyone who either refused to answer that or who wrote some smart aleck answer because they were interned, like, yeah, I'll do that when you give me back my civil rights, they got sent to Tule Lake, right? Um, which was a harsh place to be. So it was in the middle of nowhere, and then they were forced to cultivate the land, right? And basically, you know, treated very, very badly, right? So 120,000 people were interned uh, in all, and uh, 18,000 were up in Tule Lake. And we basically went up there to try and cultivate there in the community some support for having a monument there. Now, at the end of the war, they basically kicked out all of the people who had been farming that land, who had been interned there, the Japanese-Americans, uh, who then had to figure out what to do because, you know, where was their house, where were their possessions, and so on. And then they, they cut that land up, the U.S. government, and they gave it to the returning GIs as uh, homesteads, right? most of whom were European-Americans coming back from the war, uh, and gave them sort of house on that. So they had a very different view of what happened during World War II, Right. So World War II was like the Great War, you know, we fought Hitler and won, and you know, they had a very different idea than uh, the people who had been interned there. So we went up there and had a community meeting to sort of get support from the people in this very small town of 1,500 people um, for some kind of uh, national monument. 
And uh, I had to say it was a tremendously fun trip for me. So these guys were like these activists in their 80s, and uh, they just had this great spirit of adventure about the whole thing. Even though there was also this sense of urgency, because you know they were there to bear witness to this experience, and it was not clear how much longer they would be around to do that. So we uh, road tripped up there. It's like a day to get up there. And um, it's really a very rural area there. And um, we had the meeting in this uh, community center, which is called the Honker, which is um, because there's a lot of migratory geese there. And it's also the uh, like high school rec center slash you know, everything. It's a very small town, so there's one uh, building. And we also visited the Rotary Club there uh, and met with some farmers and so on. So they basically showed pictures of their time there, but they were, you know, not very, they were not blaming at all. They were really just saying, you know, this is our experience during this time, and we'd really like to uh, have something to commemorate this. Uh, there were actually a lot of people who showed up for this meeting, about uh, 150 people, so 10% of the town showed up, um, possibly because nothing else really happened there, right? <laughs> But, uh, you know, they wanted to see what was going on. But, uh, you know, people listened to the presentation and they actually had support from many different state agencies. Um, and then they took some question and answers. And I was a facilitator of this meeting. And I remember at one point this lady who was older also, uh, who was a resident of the town, raised her hand and said, you know, I don't know what you all are complaining about because we had a lot of hard times during the war. Uh, you know, there, there was butter shortages we had. Right? And, you know, I was... Uh, kind of floored by that comment, like, you know, had she been listening to what these people had been saying about what happened to them? Uh, and Jimmy was just so graceful in his relating to the people there, and, and he just looked at her directly and said, um, you know, there was a lot of hardships during that time. And that was it. It really diffused the need for a fight about that, about whose suffering was going to be bigger or anything like that. And uh, that, just that way that they had of relating to the people there uh, allowed people to open a little bit more to a different viewpoint about what happened. Right? And um, it took a long time, but actually this last month they finally had a dedication of a monument up there. And 700 people attended. Um, but I have to say I learned a lot from these uh, people about their way of relating uh, in that moment. And it wasn't a put on either. You know, I think if you fake something like that, it's going to be felt. It was really very genuine uh, how they uh, related to people. So how do you get to be someone like that? <laughs> because everyone who's 80-something is not like that, right? So it doesn't necessarily just happen from uh, life. So Practice. So how can you practice when you go home with this? So one, of course, is that you can continue to do your metta practice. Right? So this practice that we do sitting down, the practice of saying the phrases, and cultivating this quality of the heart, right, is both a way of focusing, it's a concentration practice, and it's cultivating this quality of heart-mind. And for me, in my uh, practice, I've, I did this for about five years. Uh, this was my main practice, on retreat and off retreat. And I feel like it had such an important effect on my consciousness. It's a practice also that you can do anywhere, right? So there's a lot of places uh, in life, even if we, you feel like you're very busy, in which uh, there's kind of these spaces, right? So when you're waiting for something, for example. So waiting in line at the supermarket, 
um, waiting uh, somewhere uh, at a traffic light, right? And it's interesting to check out, like, well, what's the quality of my mind in these moments, right? Like, what's, what's going on, you know, left to its own devices? <laughs> what's, what is the mind up to, right? And uh, one thing they might find is that the mind is incredibly self-absorbed a lot of the time, right? So, you know, there's this joke about going on, um, you know, the worst date possible with someone who's very narcissistic, who's talking about themselves all the time. It's like, oh, yeah, 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 blah, 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 about my work and about my accomplishments and blah, 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 about my family and blah, 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 about my education, right? And then finally you get to the dessert and they say, oh, I'm sorry, I've been talking about myself all night. What do you think of me, right? (laughs) So it sounds funny because who would do that on a date? That's terrible, right? Who would do that in general? But if you pay attention to your mind, (laughs) you might see some shadow of that going on, right? So, uh, you know, the, the unenlightened mind is just really self-centered and focused on the universe revolves around me, right? And it's such a radical shift to be in some place with others and shift that from, you know, what's going on for me, this, that, the other, the stories that we tell ourselves, the stories that create suffering, right? Shifting that to cultivating this quality of metta, right? For yourself and then also for the others there. One uh, great place to uh, cultivate this, too, is in your uh, transit, right? So all kinds of different transit experiences are excellent places to practice metta. So I did a lot of metta practice uh, on uh, buses and trains, right? So if you're someone who takes public transport, it's really good. You can practice, you can start practicing with yourself, with your benefactor. And then it's interesting to say, you know, whoever walks through the door of the bus, like, I'm going to try and wish well for them, right? So who usually arguably should be the neutral person, right? But then it's interesting to see, well, what's the relationship of my mind, like instantly as that person walks in? Like what happens when someone walks in and I sometimes instantly feel like, oh, there's something about them I don't like, right? Or sometimes there's something about them I like, right? And where do we get that from, right? Is it, you know, we're like making it up a lot of the time, right? And if I don't do that, what's my relationship to the other people in the train or the bus? So either I'm ignoring them a lot of the time, or sometimes a sort of territorial hostility, right? <laughs> like, don't sit next to me, I want the seat to be empty, something like that, right? Um, in airplanes, too. You know, sometimes if you go on a long airplane trip, you're in this uh, container with a bunch of people for, you know, hours, like a whole day sometimes. And uh, have I even given any thought to them? Right. Uh, like, what's my relationship to these people? Right. What's my relationship to this situation? So it's interesting to see how that can shift your mind, your consciousness. If in some group setting like that, even if just for a few moments, you kind of take in that group and do some well-wishing for that group of people. Right. So either individually for people or just even for all of us. Right. It just kind of changes it from like, I'm here and I'm navigating through my life and you all are obstacles, you know, to like, you know, we're actually like all in this together, which is so true in these situations, right? And sometimes you get away with being able to ignore that. And then sometimes there's like something that happens in a bus or in a train or in a plane, right? It's delayed or there's some calamity that happens. And then suddenly you realize like we are in this together, you know, and we do have to deal with each other and we do have to figure out how to relate to each other. And what's the space from which I want to do that? 
So transportation practice can be very, very uh, helpful. Right? Uh, practicing in supermarkets also, right? When you have to stand in line at the checkout, right? Uh, practicing metta for the people around you, for the people working there, very helpful. It's also helpful to notice this uh, quality of uh, what affects and what supports metta and what does not support it. So, uh, for example, if you hang around people who tend to be like very critical, right, it tends, I've noticed, to incline your mind in that direction too. Right? So now this doesn't mean that you have to expunge all critical people from your life, because you actually can also be a catalyst for shifting that. So this is also an interesting place to uh, practice, is if in some group, sort of the conversation is becoming somewhat critical and negative and aversive, right? Like, is it possible with some uh, intention of loving-kindness, intention of metta, to actually point out something else, right? So there's a little about, like, what Jim was, sorry, what James was saying about his mom's practice, right? Saying, like, oh, and this, right? So you can see if, like, oh, when the conversation's going down like this, can I notice something else and contribute that, and will that have a positive effect? I mean, it could be that the people will just be annoyed with you and continue on, right? <laughs> but you can try it and see. Right? Another interesting place to practice is with the difficult person, right? So here, under laboratory conditions, you got to practice with the difficult person, but they were not, in fact, with you. <laughs> Live, being difficult in the moment, right? So, uh, but you don't have to worry because they'll be out there, you know, waiting for you. And um, you will encounter them, and even if you leave one situation where they had manifested, you often find that they manifest in a different way, but actually similarly in a different situation, right? So how can the teachings help us to uh, relate to the difficult person? So I think it's helpful to uh, realize that the metta practice is not one that means that you have to condone all actions, right? So some people are difficult people who are doing things that are destructive in the world. They're doing things that are harmful to you, doing things harmful to other people, right? In that case, one way you can relate to that is to say, you know, with that, that experience of the wisdom eye being opened, being closed, being opened, being closed. So when people are doing things that are destructive, is closed, right? It's from that state of ignorance, right? And that's just what it is. It is what it is. They're doing that thing, so that doesn't mean you have to put yourself in proximity to them, but you also don't have to hate them. Right? So that's where the freedom can come for your heart, too. You can protect yourself. You can decide not to hang out with them, not to lend them something, you know, not to be close to them. Uh, and that all can come from wisdom. But you actually don't have to add on the hating part. Right? So the hating part comes from the idea that hatred is my protection. Hatred will... Uh, insulate me from this. Right? So it's kind of like if, um, if there's a, a small child who wants to do something, like, uh, you know, I want to carry this glass of water uh, to the table, right? And a little kid wants to do this. And you know they can't do that, right? You know they're not strong enough, they don't have good balance, they're going to drop the glass of water, right? But they keep insisting, like, no, no, I can do it, I can do it. Right? Um, but you know they can't do it. So uh, you understand that that's not their ability right now, right? That's not within their uh, range. So you don't give them the glass of water to carry, but you also don't have to hate them, right? <laughs> right? 
like you just understand, like this is their story at this moment, is that uh, they can't do this, right? Uh, and knowing that wisely, I'm not going to give this to them, right? But I also don't have to hate them for it. Yeah. So it's kind of similar with people who are being difficult people or who are doing destructive things. So they're in a certain state right now, right? Which also doesn't have to be permanent. They could change, right? But right now they're doing something that's uh, problematic, right? And you can decide to deal with them in a way that seems wise, but you don't have to add on the hate, right? Another uh, teaching that I find helpful around this is the uh, reflecting about anatta, so that there is not a solid self uh, in people, right? So everyone's always changing. And we're just going by our conditioning when this wisdom eye is closed. So Thich Nhat Hanh has a very um, beautiful teaching about this, about the empty boat. So if you're on a a lake and you're rowing in a boat and another boat comes and smacks into you, at first you might be mad. Say like, hey, who rowed their boat into me? Like, why did you do that? And then if you notice that the boat is empty, it just drifted into you because of the waves, because of the wind, because of the direction that that it was pointed. You don't have to be mad at the boat. You can push the boat away and then keep rowing. But if you thought there was someone in the boat who intentionally hit you, then you get mad at them. So in actuality, we are playing out conditioning and there's not really someone there per se, in ourselves and someone else. So even those people who smack into you in their boats, the boat is empty. But so is your boat. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes reflecting on that can help you to get out of that uh, mindset. So some of you are staying on and shifting to the uh, mindfulness practice. Right? And metta is very helpful, a really good foundation for moving into practicing mindfulness. In fact, I actually prefer the translation that's uh, heartfulness than mindfulness. The heart and mind are considered the same, actually, in the uh, teachings. So the, the metta practice can bring a real spaciousness and sense of uh, ease with your practice of presence. So even if something difficult is coming up, having this flavor of metta in your awareness of it will help you very much to be, uh, to be with it. And you can think about this in terms of, you know, what are the qualities of love? So in the, the practice of awareness, it actually is like a relationship that you're having with whatever's arising in the moment. Right, whether it's in your body, in your mind, externally. Right? So love is also uh, relational. Right? So one of the qualities of love is that love is welcoming. Right? So if you love someone, you're happy to see them. Like, oh, great. Right? So that can color your practice, like a sort of welcoming of what's coming up in the moment. Right? Love is patient. Right? So you can uh, have try to have some patience with whatever it is that's coming up. Right? It could be what you want, it could be what you don't want, it could be you were okay with it for the first five minutes, but not for an hour. Right? So, but if you uh, love someone or love something, you're patient with them. Right? Love has a quality of intimacy. Right? So in the best practice of this mindfulness, there is this quality of intimacy with your experience this quality of closeness, like how close can you actually be to, to what's happening? How connected can you be? Right? And that connection is also a dimension of love. 
Love, love is a good listener. So people that you love, uh, when you meet them after a long time, uh, you really want to know what's going on, right? So, hey, how was your week? Right? What happened? Tell me. Yeah. And when you listen like that to someone who is a good friend of yours, it's not that you only will listen when they say things that are happy that happen, but if they say things that are unhappy, you don't want to hear it, right? So you really want to know how they're doing. So if how they're doing is that uh, they had a lot of pain this week, or someone disappointed them, or something really terrible happened, you still want to hear that, right? Because that's what's really happening. So similarly, bringing this quality of metta to your awareness practice can help you to bring that same quality to meeting your own experience. So like in each moment, you're paying attention to like, well, what's really happening? And seeing if you can bring that kind of quality of interest, of friendliness, that you would have with a good friend. So regardless of what it is that they deliver as the answer. The metta can also help you to have a sense of humor, which is invaluable when you're paying attention to your mind. So as you have noticed probably this week, your mind will deliver up all kinds of things. Right. Uh, the mind has no shame. <laughs> the mind will think any thoughts and can go from you know, exalted heights of uh, bliss and metta and seemingly high absorbed states to extremely mundane and very bratty, right? to like uh, villainous. Right? So the whole range is there. And I think an important um, piece to bring to practice is this aspect of self-honesty, right? So being willing to be honest with yourself about what's happening. So regardless of what's happening, regardless of whether you feel like, oh, I'm going to tell someone about this later, I'm going to tell the teacher, to make some commitment to yourself, like some vow to yourself. Like, I want to be as honest with myself as I can. Like, I want to be as real with myself as I can about what's really going on. And then paying attention. And then taking it with a grain of salt, what comes up. So these thoughts are just arising, right? It's also not you, per se. Where does it come from? It comes from conditioning. Who knows where things come from? Uh, You can't always trace them specifically back to something. But just see it arising and uh, take it with a grain of salt, right? So don't believe everything that you think. So when you have this attitude towards your mind, it can actually be really interesting. And uh, even the zooming from the zenith of... uh, uh, high spirituality to the like depths of uh, being ridiculous can be very interesting to see, you know, like that range of things. Uh, so sometimes something will come up in my mind, I'm like, wow, look how bratty that was, you know, it's just really, wow, that was, you know, and uh, it's just interesting to see it. Like you don't have to take it personally in some way, you know, and it's better to see it than not see it, right? So see that, uh, let it go. Uh, and with the metta can help us to accept, like, yeah, this is part of the range of my human experience. This is part of the range of everyone's human experience. It's very humbling, these practices, right? As you probably noticed, it's humbling. And it's a good thing. That humility will actually help you, uh, because that humility is actually the way things are. Things are not in our control, right? We're not scripted out, and... uh, as disappointing as it seems, we're not perfect. So 
one of the greatest freedoms from the metta practice, I think, is getting the sense that you actually don't need to seek love externally. Right? So sometimes we have this idea that uh, I need to find someone to love me. Right? I need to get everybody to behave in ways that uh, will suit me. Or I need to get people to like me and feel this way towards me. And while it's always nice to have people love you and like you and so on, uh, what I hope you've discovered this week is that actually you yourself are a conduit for that love, right? Like as much or uh, better than any other person in the world, you yourself are a channel for that, right? And you can tune into that channel at any time. So you don't actually need to find someone who's going to feel these things about you, think these things about you, and then you know try to constantly please them so they keep that same feeling about you, right? It's very tiring, right? You can actually have close relationships with people, but you don't actually need them for that anymore, which is a great freedom. Right? And in fact, you yourself can be actually a source of this loving kindness for yourself and for other people. Right? So you yourself can also be a source of blessing. So uh, I remember growing up and having people who were sort of holy people you know, bless you. Right? So these special people could bless you. Right? So all of us actually can bless each other. You can bless yourself, you can bless other people, and the blessing is this connection to this love. So you can bless people in the airport. Mm -hmm. You can bless your friends. You can bless yourself. May you be happy, may you be safe, may you be free. And this is actually this radical freedom, and it's the freedom that comes from the unconditional part of the metta. That it's not dependent on someone else is not dependent on someone else's behavior. Right? It actually is something that we can just access. Right? There's a, a woman who was very instrumental in creation of the hospice, uh, hospices, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, right? who was an expert in death and dying, right? a doctor who, uh, at a time when death was considered something to be put aside and ignored in hospitals, start to pay attention to people who are dying and talk to them. So she did a lot of amazing work about this, right? Many of you have probably heard of her stages, the stages of death and dying she came up with and so on. I watched a, a film about her, and uh, she also was subject to, of course, the forces of change. So her life at some points went really well, and she was really successful. And at some other points, it went not well. And she tried to create this uh, hospice place, and the people in the town didn't like it and burned it down, and she had some money troubles. And So towards the end of her life, when she was 75, she was basically living alone in the desert. Uh, but she had this uh, spiritual teacher she came upon. Um, it, it didn't say what tradition it was from. And basically, it seemed like he was sort of teaching her this uh, uh, practice of loving-kindness. So she was a pretty uh, like kind of hardcore, strong uh, woman, from uh, Switzerland, uh, like a kind of tough, uh, tough cookie. So here's her account of her spiritual practice. So, uh, so I asked the teacher, what do I need to learn? And he said, a lot. <laughs> I said, well, give me one thing at a time. I'll learn that, and then the next thing until I'm finished. So she's like very methodical. Right? So <laughs> first I had to learn to love myself. I really hated that. <laughs> I can't sit here like an idiot and learn to love myself. (laughs) He said, you could do it if you want to. I was supposed to use a mirror, but there was no way I was going to do that. (laughs) 
You did all these exercises until you learned. One was as bad as the next. <laughs> but she did it. So. And then he said he knew what I had to learn next, surrender. I said, the Swiss do not surrender. <laughs> surrender means giving up, and I don't give up so easily. At that time, I wanted everything now. Not in two years, not in three years, but now. Uh, but after a while, I realized that I had to let go. So she called, you know, what you might call the Dhamma or God, the boss. So she said, I, had to, I realized I had to let the boss take care of things. After I learned that, everything was a lot easier. So these practices of learning love and learning surrender, learning to let go, learning non-clinging, they support each other. You know, they're two sides of the same coin. And at different points in your practice, different points in your life, one of them may call you more, one of them may be emphasized more, and at other times, uh, the other one may. Both are good, right? These are the wings, wings of the bird, right, to cultivate. So whichever one that you're with is a good place to be. Whichever one that you're with is a place of learning. And whichever one that you're with can give this freedom from danger, freedom from animosity, freedom from oppression to limitless beings and to yourself. So I wish that for all of you in your practice, in your life. Thank you for having me this week. It's been a privilege to be with you and also the other teachers. So before we end, uh, Shardo is going to make an announcement about the schedule tomorrow. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.